This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Tonight's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after several days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Noah, David. I missed you all last week. Um, Since starting this church or being here while God started this church, um, I've not missed a Sunday. And last week, Trish and I both woke up early Sunday morning, very sick, and uh, spent large parts of that day together in the bed sleeping waking up occasionally to see if we could hear four voices throughout the house, hoping that there were still four children inside the house, not outside the house, and God was gracious to us, and he sustained us in that. But it was really hard for me not to be here at 5.30 to be with you. I missed you all tremendously, and I'm really glad to be back. We're going to keep going through our study of Mark tonight, and um, and we'll make a few uh, comments concerning Advent as we go along Um, But if you're new to us, we just sort of walk through books of the Bible together in our teaching time. This is a time where I get up and try and explain a portion of God's scripture, and then we just keep moving in the worship. And so we're going through um, a study on the book of Mark. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to Mark chapter 2. You might also want to put a thumb in James chapter 5, which is towards the end of the Bible. And it's in the New Testament as well. I'll make some references to James chapter 5. But we're going through um, the the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospels were written um, because the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension, the eyewitnesses to Jesus in the first century were beginning to die off. And so God, by his Holy Spirit, uh, directed four men to begin to take and write accounts of the life of Jesus. Some of them were eyewitnesses, and they were able to just write what they knew. And some of them, like Mark, um, had to go and, and get information from eyewitnesses and make sure that they got the account right. But tonight we're making a, a switch in the book of Mark. We're changing gears a little bit. So far up until this point, Mark has been very chronological. 
He's been uh, very time-oriented, and he has skipped large amounts of time, but he's been time-oriented. And tonight is the first of five units or five stories or five passages we're going to look at. The first of five where Mark's going to go from chronological to thematic, where he's going to study a particular theme. Now, tonight's story is chronological. You can see as it begins, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. But the next Four are going to be stories that Mark has taken out and placed at this point in his gospel. And we're not sure if it's because Peter, who is Mark's source, was telling him, I want you to do it this way, or if Mark just thought these five stories might be particularly insightful and helpful to us. But Mark is changing gears here because the opposition of Jesus up until this point has been very spiritual. It has not been human in any way, shape, or form. But starting tonight and for the next five stories, we're going to see that the opposition to Jesus Those who oppose him are religious professionals. So we're going to begin to see that that which is in opposition to the gospel and gospel community and the kingdom advancing started out as religious professionals getting in the way of people who wanted to be with Jesus. So it's a very sobering time for me as one um, who stands as a religious professional or one who makes his money off of his religion because The Bible shows me case after case after case of how I could get in the way of you all knowing, loving, and feeding on Jesus. So this is a sober time for me. At the same time, it's a very hopeful time because we're gonna see yet again the beauty and the grace, the majesty and the glory of Jesus in this passage. I didn't know how better to organize it. There's a lot going on here. So um, Michelle and Aaron had this idea this week. On Thursday, we print the bulletin, the worship folder, and they indicated it's more helpful when I give you some idea of where I think I might go and put it in the bulletin. So we came up with this idea that I would just sort of tell you this story through the lens of the four people or groups of people found in this passage. There's two individuals, Jesus and a paralytic, and we'll see just like with the leper, they're going to change places in the gospel. And there are two groups, one who is in opposition to Jesus and to what he's trying to do, And the other group is these four men carrying the paralytic and they are trying to get to Jesus and they're trying to get their friend to Jesus. So I'll just kind of walk you through the story uh, through these four groups, either person or groups of people. So we'll just pick up with the shocked paralytic, the shocked paralytic verses one through five. Listen to what was the expectation of the paralyzed man. We don't know if he was a quadriplegic or just he was paralyzed from the waist down, but there was some paralysis in his body. Let's look at what his expectation was and the expectation of his friends in verses one through three. And when he returned talking of Jesus to Capernaum after some days, it was, it was reported that he was at home. Now remember, Capernaum is Jesus's base of operations. He went out and he was preaching through all of Galilee and uh, now he's back to what he calls home. So we don't know if first one means his home or if they're saying Capernaum is his home and he's hanging out at the house of Simon and Andrew, where he was in chapter one. If Jesus owned a home, though, which is unlikely, it would have been here in Capernaum, but this is where he felt most comfortable in his ministry, according to Mark. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. If you remember from last week, Jesus had this amazing opening day, this amazing opening act, where he was teaching with such authority and power in the synagogue that everyone's jaws were dropping about how profound he was. And we can only presume it was something like Luke 24, where he was showing people how to be related to God through grace-oriented ways and not performance-oriented ways. And people were just astounded at what he was saying, presumably about the Messiah, although they didn't know that he was the Messiah. 
And not only that, he leaves and, and, um, and he goes to the house of uh, Simon and Andrew and Simon's mother-in-law. And just for, if, if you're wondering, that's like the best reference as you get older. If you're a woman that your son-in-law should take you into his home and take care of you. It's right there. It's in the Bible. And so uh, Simon's uh, mother-in-law was sick and Jesus raises her. And then it says at sundown, so when the Sabbath was over, uh, every demon-possessed person and every sick person in Capernaum, the whole city, it says, was brought to him. And he was dealing with all of them in accordance with his kingdom, which is pushing back evil and bringing forth good. Okay, so the expectation is now that he has told Peter, Peter's like, get back into Capernaum. Remember, he went away to go pray. And, and um, those are not my glasses. We'll just keep going. So Capernaum, uh, Peter said, get back in Capernaum. What are you doing out here praying in the wilderness? Any ideas? Smart mechanical people? No problem for me. Oh, Aaron's still sitting there. That means it's not a sound problem. Okay. So Peter's like, get back in here. You're gonna be the most amazing and famous miracle worker of all time. And Jesus said, I can't go back to Capernaum and whip up the crowds into a frenzy. Um, I've gotta go. And he says, this is my primary task is to go and preach the gospel. And so Jesus begins to go through all Galilee. It ends chapter one saying he's going through preaching the gospel. But remember the story of the leper. It wasn't that Jesus was going to exclusively preach and deal with spiritual issues. He was also gonna deal with any physical issues that came his way. And so the leper comes to him, and while Jesus is dealing with spiritual stuff, the leper comes with a physical problem. And we remember that Jesus, driven by his compassion, reaches out and touches him and makes him whole. And Jesus takes his place with the unclean and symbolizing him going to the cross for us and for the leper. And so your expectation would be that this is a normal thing. Jesus is once again teaching, which is his priority, and someone wants to interrupt him for a healing. Can you imagine the shock We'll pick up verses four and five later, but can you imagine the shock of verse five? Son. Okay, this, some translations say my son, my dear son, my little son. It's, it's a term of endearment. It's also a term of authority. He's saying, I'm an authority over you, but I also care about you. And what comes next absolutely shocks. Your sins are forgiven. Now just imagine, just imagine that you um, are paralyzed and you go and you have found the right surgeon and the right set of doctors, and they say, we can take care of this with a surgery in the intricate parts of your spine. And we're, we're gonna be able to do this for you. And when you wake up, we're gonna be here for you. And, um, and, and you go into surgery and, and you take the gas or the shot or the drink or whatever you take, and you begin to go under. And then the next thing you know, you wake up and you think for sure that you're gonna be able to raise your hands or pick up your legs or wiggle your toes, but everything is still numb and you're still paralyzed. You would be shocked. But it would begin to make sense to you if the doctor came in and said, it's a very normal thing for us to do to do a stress test on your heart before we do surgery on your spine. And we found out that your heart was not able to handle the surgery on your back. And so your deepest, most prominent need was heart surgery. And so we took care of that and you're still paralyzed. First, you would be shocked, but second, you would be thankful. You'd be glad to know that the doctor did not go after a secondary issue at the risk of your heart or your primary reality going dead. 
That's what's going on in this passage. Jesus is saying, I will heal people when they come to me, but my primary task is to take care of them spiritually. I'll prove the point to you that his spiritual need is his deepest need. Has anyone visited the Middle East and gone and taken tours in and around Bible places and times? I mean, has anyone gone to the paralyzed man's house and asked him which was his most prominent need? Of course not. He's dead. He's dead just like every other person that Jesus healed. And if Jesus doesn't deal with his heart, he doesn't deal with his primary need. And so the first thing that we've got to think about when we come to this text is that when we go to Jesus, we almost always go with a secondary need. And he is good enough, gracious enough, and wise enough to work on the primary need, which is the need of our hearts. I can't tell you how many times I feel like I've gone into prayer or gone into the throne room of grace and began to talk to Jesus about all the things I need and I get the sense that he's saying to me, I'm glad you're here. I got some stuff I wanna talk to you about. But isn't this cool about Jesus and his grace that we will go to him even for things that we don't understand to be our deepest needs and he is so kind and good and powerful and so not worried about our approval that he can do for us whatever we need done and we can trust him that he is good Uh, a short little rabbit trail this text is the only text in the bible excuse me in the gospels where jesus in his teaching correlates an illness with a sin just so you know it's the only text and some commentators will say it's like the blind man in John chapter nine, the disciples are saying, hey, who sinned? He or his parents, he's been blind since birth. And Jesus says, neither. This has happened so that God might be glorified in heaven. Some commentators say he just has two problems. Some commentators will say that there's a connection here. It doesn't really matter which one's going on here. We know from 1 Corinthians 11 that spiritual, excuse me, that physical illnesses can be the result of spiritual problems in our heart. That when people are taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner in 1 Corinthians 11, they have a spiritual problem and it manifests itself physically. That some are weak and ill and some have even died. We talked about this. Remember several weeks ago, we were talking about all that is wrong with us and all that Jesus comes to heal in us. And remember it was, it was pretty bad, but my mentor has this saying um, that goes, uh, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly and uh, trying to get better at it. So that's my strategy on preaching, um, is it's worth doing and I'd like to get better at it and you just have to be the recipients of that. But the idea here is that we are connectional, holistic beings and that sometimes our physical ailments are the result of a spiritual problem. Not always, I just told you about John chapter nine where that's not the case. If you don't believe me, think about James chapter five. It says, if any of you are sick, go to an elder and ask him to pray. Then it goes on and says, the very next thing, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful while it's working. I'm just telling you, when I get sick, one of the things I try and do quickly is pray Psalm 139. God, search me and know me. And you tell me if there's any grievous way in me that you can lead me in the life everlasting. I'm just putting that out there. I'm not saying every time you get sick, it's a spiritual problem. I'm just giving you an understanding of the Bible that you're a holistic being. And sometimes when we're sick, it's because we have unrepentant sin 
in our hearts. And the way of life everlasting, of course, from Psalm 139 is to bring our sins to the Lord and be forgiven and to be changed in the power of the gospel. So now, look at where we're at. See us here? The paralyzed man and his four friends are thinking, if we can just get to Jesus, everything's gonna be okay. And Jesus utterly shocks him and goes right into the heart of what his deepest need is. It is not what he has come there to pray for. It is what Jesus knows to be his deepest need. And he's just kind of sitting there shocked. Look at what happens next as we look at the offended scribes, starting in verse six. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God, but God alone? I want you to just know for a second that Jesus is okay with not healing the paralytic on the paralytic's timetable. The paralyzed man is still sitting there shocked and now Jesus has moved on to the offended scribes. Just something for us to keep in the back of our mind that Jesus is not going to always do everything we tell him to do. He's not a genie in a bottle but he is good and we can trust him. So this is what the scribes are saying. They're saying he's a blasphemer. Blasphemy is different than taking the Lord's name in vain. Taking the Lord's name in vain is this idea of using Jesus's name for your own gain. It's the idea uh, of using God's name in some sort of way that you think you're gonna get mastery over God and you're gonna get what you need because you flippantly use his name. Blasphemy is this idea where I think I am God and I begin to live life as if I am God. And of course, the great irony of our text is that the scribes are sitting there in a godlike stance on their throne telling Jesus that he's guilty of blasphemy. But listen, I gotta tell you, the Old Testament very clearly teaches, very clearly teaches there's only one who can forgive sins and that is God alone. Do you know the story of David and Bathsheba? David is the king of Israel and he has his men out fighting spreading the boundaries of the kingdom of God. And he, instead of being with them, leading them in battle, is at home. And he's up on his rooftop and he's looking out over his land and he sees an attractive woman. And he goes and he takes her and he takes him to himself and makes her him own. It makes her his own. You find out later that she is with child. David's child, and that her husband was not at home looking off rooftops like David, but he was out fighting for Israel. So David has a problem on his hands. What's he going to do? Well, what he does is he brings the commander of the army back and says, I want Bathsheba's husband out on the front lines, and I want you to retreat and pull away from him, and I want him to die in battle. That's exactly what happens. David is guilty of Laziness and arrogance, not out with the men fighting, thinking he's better than them. He's guilty of objectifying a woman and seeing her as something that can bring him pleasure. He's guilty of cheating on his spouse. He's guilty of murder. Look, think of all he's guilty of and listen to what he says in Psalm chapter 51 when he's writing a psalm about this Occasion after the, the prophet Nathan has come to him to confront him, he says to God, against you and you only have I sinned. The Old Testament priests would never say your sins are forgiven. They would always say in, in a mediatorial way, in a way between them and God, they would always say the Lord forgives your sins. They would never say your sins are forgiven. And this is what Nathan says in response in 2 Samuel 12, 13, when David repents, 
and seeks forgiveness, this is what Nathan says. He is not God, so he does not say your sins are forgiven. He says, the Lord has put away your sins. This is the reason that the scribes are really offended. Is because Jesus has just taken one of the rights of God himself and assumed it to be his very own. When he says your sins are forgiven. Now listen, Tom, Dick, and Harry walk into a bar. Tom punches Dick. Harry walks up to Tom and says, Tom, that was the wrong thing to do, but I forgive you. Dick's like, what? He punched me. Either Harry's a lunatic or he's the Lord of all that is. The Bible teaches us that every sin we commit is an offense against two parties. Primarily, it's an offense against God because he designed us to love. And secondarily, every offense is an offense against a human being. The Bible does say against you and you alone have I sinned, but then also in Matthew 18, Jesus says, if someone sins against you, this is how you forgive them. So what, what the Bible teaches as a whole is that every sin we commit is against God and against the design he created us for, and it's against a human being of not being treated with the dignity of being made in the image of God. And so our scribes are absolutely right. Either Jesus is a blasphemer, and according to Leviticus, he deserves to die, or he's the Lord. And so Jesus is going to prove to them that he's the Lord in two ways. He's going to give them a riddle that they can't solve, and he's gonna heal the man. Let's keep reading. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, now remember, this is very, very important that the scribes are not actually talking to Jesus yet. One of the things you can know about religious professionals is that they think to themselves an awful lot. And like in Luke 18, it says, religious professionals pray to themselves an awful lot. They rarely actually go to God and communicate directly with him. Of course, the irony is they could talk to Jesus and they would be praying. The next story, they're gonna pull Jesus' disciples aside. They're still not gonna go talk to Jesus yet. They're gonna pull his disciples aside and talk to them. And so the irony is, is Jesus shows that he is the Lord by perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves. And he said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed, and walk? And we have a good question before us. And the answer is, of course, both. What is absolutely impossible with man to either forgive sins or to heal miraculously is absolutely possible with God. Now, what Jesus is saying in this case, he is saying, which is easier? And he says this key word, he said, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. And in this case, the easier one is to say your sins are forgiven because it's not verifiable. If Jesus says to him, take up your bed and go and walk home and and leap for joy and he doesn't do it, then Jesus is in trouble. And that's why Jesus goes on and says this, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he tells the paralytic to get up. And this is the point. Jesus does not heal the paralytic because the paralytic came and asked him. He heals the paralytic so that the scribes would know he has authority to forgive sins. But I gotta tell you, our riddle has another twist on it. 
It's easier to say your sins are forgiven from a verifiable standpoint, but from the standpoint of the divine, it's much easier to heal him and not forgive him because when he forgives him, he is adding his sins to the burden he must bear on the cross. And the only one that can forgive sins is God alone, and that's because God's the only one that can come and live and die for sinners and truly forgive them. And so it's a brilliant, unbelievable question. I love, I've been reading, I've been doing CBR for six or seven years now, and I am seeing stuff about Jesus still every day that I never saw before. And the way that he riddles the scribes and Pharisees is brilliant. They're like, he'll, he'll, he'll like, I'll answer your question if you'll answer this question. Was John's baptism from heaven or not? They're like, man, we're in trouble because all the people really like John. And, but he's gonna say, why didn't you do it if it's from God? And if we say it's not from God, these people are not gonna follow us. And then we're in trouble because really what we want is these people to follow us. He's just brilliant. So Jesus establishes his divinity first through a riddle and then second through a healing. Now, we've talked about the shocked paralytic. We've talked about the offended scribes. Let's talk about the faithful four. This is where you and I get shocked and offended. First, let's just define faith. I don't have a lot of time to talk about this because I really want to get into the shock of the four in the faithful four. But this is the first time Mark brings up the idea of faith in his gospel. It's huge. The importance here is astronomical. If you're new to the Bible, the Bible teaches in Ephesians 2 that we are saved by faith. So to understand what faith is, is huge. Look at what faith is not. It's not talking. This is part of why Mark has nobody speak at all until the very end. It's because cynicism is in the heart and you don't go and talk to God about it for him to correct it. Faith is not talking primarily. Secondly, faith is not primarily a set of understanding uh, principles that you understand. Not primarily. Third, faith is not primarily an emotion. According to Mark, in his perspective on what faith is, faith is primarily an action where you move towards Jesus believing that he can take care of any problem you have. Faith is the idea from Mark when he's, he's telling us what faith is right now. Faith is the removal of any obstacle between you and Jesus. The belief being that absolutely nothing can satisfy me, nothing can fulfill me, nothing will give me life, nothing will give me peace, nothing will give me hope, nothing will deal with my guilty conscience, nothing can bring me into a more loving existence where I love other people and don't use them, nothing can do anything for me if I don't get to Jesus. And so Mark defines faith not so much about anything more than what the object of the faith is, and that object is Jesus. And getting to him is the whole enchilada. And this is the cool part about faith, is that even going to Jesus, believing that he is the answer for whatever is going on in your heart, you can get to him with what you think your problem is, and he is so gracious and kind, he will fix what's wrong with you, even if it's not what you came to him for. He's that good. He's that brilliant. He's that wise. He's that loving. And so look at the faithful four. So that is what faith is. Faith is this idea, you're like, what's going on in verses four and five? These homes in Palestine, 
We know from archaeology that the house is a one-room house. It's one room, and it was as long or as wide as they could find wood trees to be the beams for the ceiling. And they would run these really long uh, tree trunks across this one room, and they would get these tree trunks on there, and then they would start to fill in with sticks and leaves and mud and broken tile, and they would do whatever they could to create a structure that rain would not go through. And then this second story, so to speak, had stairs on the outside, stone stairs, where you would walk up to the roof. And even on the roof, there would usually be some sort of shade because people spent most of their time on the roof, not in the house. And so when these men want to get to Jesus, remember who's in the way. Luke tells us in chapter five, the exact same story. He says that there were scribes coming, religious professionals coming from all of Galilee, all of Judea, all of Jerusalem, the house is full of religious people getting in the way of men who are trying to get their friend to Jesus. But they will not be deterred by the crowds. Just so you know, the crowds, this word's gonna come up 40 times in our study of the book of Mark between now and Mark chapter 10. They never, ever repent and believe. Jesus is preaching them the whole time and Jesus has already told us in Mark chapter one that what he preaches is repentance. Say about whatever it is that you're worshiping. This is not going to provide life. I'm gonna go worship Jesus. And when I get there, he is gonna forgive me for the rebellion of worshiping this created thing. He is going to satisfy me. He is going to forgive me. He is going to give me life. 40 times the crowds are gonna come up of these religious professionals. Never once will they repent and believe. They will applaud at a Cirque du Soleil show when Jesus does something cool, but they will never submit. And that is the primary obstacle What I am telling you is this, is religion is the primary obstacle between you and Jesus. You can write that down. Religion is this idea that I do something or I bring something or I am something so that God loves me. That is heinous and it is not the gospel. And that is what blocks you and I from getting to Jesus with nothing in our hands except for our desperate need for him and our utter belief that he can fix what's going on. That's faith. And so they get up on the roof and they begin to dig the roof out. Literally, the word in verse four, they made an opening. It literally is they dug an opening. They let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus is looking at this guy and he has a decision to make. If he heals this guy, his human opposition is going to begin to plot and plan to kill him as a blasphemer. And yet he can't let this man not be healed. He can't let this man not know that he's forgiven of his sins. And so Jesus, yet again, is going to give. He's going to pay in order to love. But this is the part that rocks our world. Look at what Jesus saw when he said, son, your sins are forgiven. It says he saw their faith. As individualistic, isolated, Modern Americans, we believe that our salvation is based up to our faith. And the Bible says your salvation is based on their faith. Let that sit uneasy on your hearts for a while because of course the Bible is gonna teach that you individually have to exercise faith, the faith that God gives you in order to be in love with Jesus. But the Bible does not teach an American believer. The Bible does not teach a believer that does not also have gospel community around them believing for them. I can't tell you. I mean, the Bible is going to talk about someone having faith and it healing their daughter or healing their servant and them saying, thank you. But this right here says that the faith of their 
Jesus is saying their faith. He is not saying his faith. In Matthew chapter nine, the same story is told and it ends with this statement in Matthew chapter nine, verse eight. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men, plural. It does not say to a man, Jesus. It says men, plural. This is the authority that God has given. He has given the authority to community to have the power to change your life. Think with me logically about this. Think with me logically. I know that this is blowing our categories a little bit. I'm not being heretical. I've said enough qualifying statements to not get pulled in the trap door so I don't go into the land of heresy. But think about this with me. I don't know a single person that's come to faith who somebody was not praying for them to come to faith. Okay, so we believe that God can heal because people are praying for that. I pray for people to be healed all the time. I anoint people with oils and elder all the time. And I've seen God answer my prayers when I pray for somebody to come to faith and repent and believe the first time. This is what Mark chapter two and James chapter five are teaching us. That if we want to grow in Christ-like character, if we want to be developed into the image of Christ, if we want to see the gospel power at work in our lives now, transforming and sanctifying us, it won't happen unless there are four people in our lives who are gonna get our butts to Jesus when we can't get our own butts there. Four is figurative. Do you see that? James chapter five, he's saying, listen, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. The forgiving king, last but not least, the forgiving king. Listen, if I don't have any stronger call for us to get involved in community, That's the strongest one I got right there. I don't know of any better way than to say our lives are on the line here. It's very sobering. It's very serious. We'll move on to the forgiving king. I I was watching uh, last week when I wish I was with you guys. um, I was watching uh, Meet the Press. Uh, I used to enjoy it when, when Tim Russert was leading it. And uh, when he would, when he would do the interviews, it's, it's less impressive now with Tom Brokaw doing it. Uh, but I had nothing better to do and I'd been laying in bed all day and I didn't think I could be so sore from laying in bed all day. So I'm watching Meet the Press, a rerun of the morning show later that night. And listen to this conversation that unfolded between Tom Brokaw and Ted Turner. And now Ted Turner, if you're a businessman, you'll most likely know he's, he's a 70-year-old businessman from the Atlanta, Georgia area, most famous probably for CNN and the Atlanta Braves. And a lot of people would just say this man is absolutely brilliant. Uh, in particular spheres, okay? So he's turned 70. He's written a book called Just Call Me Ted, and Tom Brokaw is interviewing him. He was married to Jane, uh, Jane Fonda for a while. Uh, they were divorced based, uh, basically over his uh, refusal um, to be a believer, to be a Christian. And uh, such famous people as Jimmy Carter have tried to, to meet with this man and talk to him about the gospel. And Mr. Brokaw says to Mr. Turner, and how do you feel about Christianity now at the age of 70? Mr. Turner said, I still pray when my friends are ill. I make the prayers fairly short because I don't want to load up the wires. There's a lot of messages going, I'm sure. Just like us and the paralytic, he's got a need. So the first, thing he, the first place he goes <laughs> is to God. Not for God to deal with him, but for God to be a genie in a bottle. 
Mr. Brokaw, well, you said something else that I thought was very Turner-like when that came up. You were talking about praying for your friends. And one of your other friends said, Ted, I thought you're an agnostic, that you don't believe in God and you don't think we can know anything about him. Mr. Turner, this is what you said. Listen to this. A brilliant man said this. It encapsulates the way we live our lives and the way our culture tells us life works. And it just it encapsulates performance-based religion. I think God will let me in heaven. Remember, he's not sure you can know about God. He's not sure that you can believe in God, but when things go squirrely, he goes praying to God. And this is what he says at 70, looking at the end of his life. I think God will let me in heaven. He may not let me sit on the 50-yard line, but I think I can get into the end zone. And if you know Ted Turner, that's classic right there. And, then, and um, so Tom Brokaw is saying, did you say that? He said, I think that's true. Listen, this is so profound. Mr. Brokaw says, and here's what Jane Fonda has. And Ted Turner cut him off. Ted, he was getting a little agitated. Because, you know, I give a lot of money to those less fortunate than myself. And that's one of the tenets of all religions. You know, the wealthy should help those less fortunate than themselves. Tom Brokaw's wanting to get back to the question about Jane Fonda because that's what we all want to know. He said, and here's what Jane, and he cut him off again. He said, alms for the poor, right? He asked Tom Brokaw if he was gonna be in heaven. Figuratively, he called it the end zone because he gives money to the poor. A 70-year-old powerful man finally said, right? Can you throw me a bone here? I'm desperate. Let me tell you something. If you're new to the gospel, this is one thing you've got to understand. There is one seat in heaven, and it is on the 50-yard line. And you're either sitting on the 50-yard line because you have the righteous record of Jesus Christ that is yours by faith, or you're not in the game. There are no bad seats in heaven. Everyone there will have the beauty and the righteousness and the glory of Jesus given to them through faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there's so much more here to say, but it is so profound that you come with forgiveness and not judgment when you come as a baby. That is amazing and beautiful to me. I am so thankful that you forgive this paralyzed man his sins and you pay for them on the cross. I am so thankful that you trade places with this paralyzed man, that you died the death of a paralytic. You died because you could not raise yourself up on that cross to get another breath. And you were paralyzed and you suffocated and you died for me. Help me to believe that that is where I will find life and in you is where I'll find meaning. Jesus, forgive me for coming to you to use you. Forgive me for coming to you, looking to fix what I think is wrong with me. Forgive me for living an isolated American life instead of the life of community. Would you please come forgive us and change us? In your name we pray.